Well, folks, unfortunately, uh, the the recording for this message didn't take, so I'm re-recording it in my office, which leaves a lot to be desired, but uh, anyway, we'll get down to it. 1 Corinthians 12 began a three-chapter unit on tongues, prophecy, and other gifts, and their relation to love. And today we're considering the last chapter of this section. As we've seen, some Corinthian Christians are prioritizing less edifying spiritual gifts, charismata such as uninterpreted tongues. And that gift certainly edifies the speaker, but when used in a corporate worship context, uninterpreted tongues fails to build up the church. So that person's praising God in an unlearned language is of no benefit to anybody. It merely shines a, an ego spotlight on themselves. What's Paul's gospel solution to this mess? The Corinthians are to pursue the way of love, which the gospel embodies, by earnestly desiring and using spiritual gifts that build up the church. And the approach I've adopted is three weeks, three chapters, three sermons. Each week we've considered the major theme of the chapter, and each sermon's title is related to that theme. Simplify, simplify, simplify. Chapter 12, the mutual dependence of believers on one another. Chapter 13, the most excellent way of Christian love. And today, chapter 14, intelligibility and orderliness in corporate worship. Again, no prizes being given for originality of sermon titles, but that's what the text is about. This is what the chapter is called. This is what the sermon title is called. So, but before we jump into the deep end, let's just do some math. There are 40 verses in chapter 14. And for good or for ill, I plan to preach the whole chapter in one shot. This sermon will be about 50 minutes in length. That's de rigueur for a John Bell sermon, which works out to be 1 minute and 25 seconds per verse on average. I believe this frenetic pace is possible, God's grace assisting me for two reasons. Number one, I taught a Sunday school class last year on the New Testament gift of prophecy with an extensive Q&A session. We did a lot of heavy lifting there. Uh, in preparation for today. And secondly, I also preached two sermons in 2021 on how the gift of the Spirit and speaking in tongues in the book of Acts are related, again, in preparation for this sermon. I'm assuming you still remember some of those lessons and sermons. If not, if it's all a blank, don't worry. I'll be doing a, a lightning-fast review of some of the main points today, but I, I won't be arguing for or defending my position. I'm just going to tell you what's what. But Lord willing, in the spring, once COVID has dissipated some more, we can do a four-part Sunday School series on this topic, and my plan is to leave no charismatic stone unturned. So let's get cracking. Intelligibility and orderliness in corporate worship. That's what this chapter of the Bible is about, so that's the sermon's title. So look, look with me again at your handout. Paul deals with this matter first. Intelligibility in corporate worship, verses 1 to 25. The Corinthians are to pursue love by earnestly desiring to prophesy, which is more valuable than tongues for building up others when the church meets, because it's intelligible. And this main point is further divided into two sections, building up the church, verses 1 to 19, followed by the relation of tongues and prophecies to unbelievers, 20 to 25. And you will definitely need your Bibles open on your laps. Paul begins verse 1, follow the way of love, which of course connects to everything that we considered last week in chapter 13. Follow the way of love, the most excellent way, as Paul calls it. 
which is the very thing that the Corinthians are not doing. They're not following the way of love. Instead, they're being childish in their thinking about spiritual gifts. They're earnestly desiring the flashy gift of tongues, a desire not motivated by love, but lovelessness and pride. So Paul lays it all out. In the context of using spiritual gifts within the gathered church, how one follows the way of love is to eagerly desire to prophesy. That's the loving thing to do. That that builds up the church. Intelligible prophecy, not uninterpreted tongues. Verse 1, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gift of the spirit, the gifts of the spirit, especially prophecy, that is spirit-prompted utterance. Okay, but how is it loving to desire that gift when the church assembles? What about the gifts of uh, encouragement or teaching? Don't those build up the church too? Certainly, yeah, but that's not Paul's point. What's being addressed here is intelligibility in corporate worship. Chapter 14 is all about Paul comparing two speech gifts in the context of church meetings and and showing why prophecy is more edifying than uninterpreted tongues. Verse 1 again, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Verse 2, For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. And we need to allow that verse to say what it's saying. When a Christian speaks in tongues, they are not addressing fellow humans. They're speaking directly to God and in such a way that humans cannot understand. No one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. That is, God the Holy Spirit enables such a person to utter mysteries. Verse 3, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Don Carson writes this. I I think it's super helpful. It basically puts everything into a nutshell that Paul should restrict the focus of discussion from the grace gifts in general to two of them, prophecy and tongues, strongly suggests that there was some dispute or uncertainty about these two in the Corinthian church. It's, It's even possible that the Corinthians lumped both gifts under the rubric prophecy. And it's Paul who's making the distinction. After all, on the day of Pentecost, when the believers spoke in tongues, Peter insisted that this tongue speaking was evidence that the last day promised by Joel had dawned, the day on which sons and daughters would prophesy, Acts 2.17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So the range of the prophet word group was certainly broad enough to encompass tongue speaking. We see that in Acts 2. But in this view, it seems likely that in the eyes of some Corinthians, the tongue's form of prophecy was greatly to be preferred over the intelligible form of prophecy, presumably because it was more spectacular. So Paul draws a distinction between the two and reverses the order of rank on the basis of which one best edifies the church. And beloved, if we get this one thing under our belt here at the outset, 
then the rest of this dense chapter is relatively straightforward. I'll be so bold as to say that. It's relatively straightforward. Paul is not ranking all the spiritual gifts, placing prophecy at the very top and tongues at the bottom. He's only saying tongues is less important than prophecy on the scale of reference adopted. Which one best edifies the church? Nor is prophecy the greatest gift on some absolute scale. The relative value of prophecy over against, say, apostleship, teaching, or giving is not what's primarily in view here. But before we move on to verse 4, a couple of clarifying points concerning the grace gift of tongues. As we see in verse 2, as well as verse 16 and 28, a person speaking in tongues speaks directly to God and praises him. Verse 2, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. That's quite different from the kind of tongues we see in Acts 2 at Pentecost, isn't it? Turn to Acts chapter 2 in your Bibles. Start in verse 5. Acts 2, 5. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound... A crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthenians, Medes, Iliamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So they understood what was being said. The disciples were speaking in real human languages. This is what's called xenoglossia. That is, speaking in a human language the speaker does not know. Xenoglossia. However, if you look at your handout in your bulletin, <clears throat> where it says tongues, point B. Tongues in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 doesn't mean the same thing as in Acts. Tongues in Acts chapter 2 refers to xenoglossia, i.e. speaking in a human language the speaker does not know while tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 refers to glossolalia, that is, speaking in verbal patterns that humans cannot identify with any human language. How do we know that? Why do I say that? Because, quote, anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. We need to let verse 2 say what it's saying. Uh, point C, further, tongues and acts occurs only in groups, are not said to recur, they're public, and may serve various purposes of attestation, while tongues in 1 Corinthians fall to the individual, may be used in private, must be translated, if in public, and serve no purpose of attestation. Now, obviously, I'm assuming a lot there, but I spent two sermons in our Acts series laying out uh, point C and clarifying things, so I push on. Notice that Paul says when a person prays in a tongue, they are genuinely praying. God understands them, verse 2. It's a grace gift of the Spirit. But 
The one praying does not understand what they themselves are saying. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. This is important, and and here I'm trying to anticipate criticism. Paul does not specify that tongues refer only to xenoglossia, speaking in a human language the speaker does not know, like Arabic, and, and, and not to glossolalia, speaking in verbal patterns that humans cannot identify with any human language. Paul only says that a person praying in a tongue does not understand what they are speaking. That's it. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit, which means there isn't biblical warrant to automatically disqualify speech patterns sufficiently complex that they may bear all kinds of cognitive information in some coded array, even though linguistically these patterns are not identifiable as human language. In short, such speech is not gibberish if it conveys meaningful content. And obviously, this must be a spirit-prompted utterance. This must be content revealed by the spirit. The person is a conduit for revelation. The the gift of tongues is not a parlor trick, uh, nor is it a grace gift the speaker forces or fakes. Though I'm convinced, sadly, many, many, many people do, and they're encouraged to do so by their pastors. And these tongues uh, can be interpreted by someone with the gift of interpretation. And since those speaking in tongues are communicating meaningful, spirit-prompted content, albeit in coded array, it's not possible for multiple people to accurately interpret what someone spoke in a tongue if their interpretations conflict. Verse 3, But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort, not to tear down, discourage, or frighten others. Verse 4, anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. And again, we must let that verse speak for itself. Speaking in tongues is indeed edifying for the one speaking, even if they don't understand what they are saying. Which means... Spiritual edification can take place in ways other than through the cortex of the brain. But using a grace gift for the self in the context of corporate worship is too small a horizon for those Christians who have meditated on 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 4, anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. That is the way of love. And in any comparison of prophecy and tongues in the church, the edification of the body is a paramount concern. Verse 5, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. So Baptists, hear that. The gift of tongues is not irredeemably bad. No, it's it's a gracious gift from God. And Paul wishes all the Corinthians could experience it. But even more, Paul wishes all the Corinthians could prophesy because prophesy and interpreted tongues, you'll notice, 
is more edifying since it builds up the church. And when Paul says that uh, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, he doesn't mean that person is inherently better than the other. He means that person is more edifying. And now Paul illustrates verse 5 with verse 6 and following. Verse 6, now brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? If Paul met with the Corinthian church and spoke in uninterpreted tongues, he would not build them up. What would build them up is intelligible words. How shall I benefit you unless I report to you a revelation or some knowledge or unless I prophesy to you or teach you? The point is clear. Corporate edification demands, it demands intelligible content and tongues by themselves cannot provide it. That's the issue. Verse 7, even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying... I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. And it, that Paul has to labor the point with examples from musical instruments and military bugle calls suggests just how deeply committed to advancing the superiority of tongues some of the Corinthians must have been. Distinct notes from an instrument in coherent array constitute music and creates pleasure. Distinct notes from a military horn elicit obedience. Understanding another's language makes communication possible. So it is with you, Paul writes in verse 12, and the application is obvious. Since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, and I, I think we can detect a hint from the context that their desire was unfortunately warped. Since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. So that means the same person would both speak in a tongue and interpret what they had just spoken. Unintelligible words do not build up the church. Intelligible words do build up the church. Verse 14, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And just to clarify, speaking in a tongue and praying in a tongue are identical in this passage. Speaking in tongues is a way to pray to God. All right, we saw that in verse 2. Verse 15, so what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. To pray or sing praise with one's spirit refers to speaking in tongues, and apparently to sing with one's spirit is a more melodious or metrical form of tongue-speaking, praying. And while to pray or sing praise with one's mind refers to understanding what I'm saying, when God enables me to interpret what I have just prayed in tongues. So to paraphrase Paul, in the context of church meeting, of a church meeting, if God gives me the gift of tongues, what should I do? 
I should speak in tongues. I should sing in tongues. But I should also interpret what I say. Verse 16. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the Spirit, how can someone else, who is now put in the position of an inquirer, that is, a Christian without the gift of interpretation or a non-tongue speaker, how can they say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you are saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. Now, verse verses 16 to 17 might mislead some to conclude that tongues aren't really a valuable gift at all. So Paul clarifies, no, tongues are a gift from God. And if God gives them, we should gratefully thank him for that gift. But just look at what he says. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. And with verse 18, we're suddenly provided a remarkable insight into Paul the Christian. This is something we never would have known had not the circumstances of a particular church in the providence of God elicited these words from him. The Apostle Paul spoke in tongues more than all the Corinthians. And sharing this information gives Paul even more credibility uh, as he argues that prophecy is more edifying than tongues in church meetings. This, this gift you value so highly, brothers and sisters. I speak in tongues more than all of you, that yet still I insist, verse 19, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And to my thinking, there's no stronger defense of the private use of tongues than that verse. And I say that as someone who's never spoken in a tongue in his life. Think about it. If Paul speaks in tongues more than all the Corinthians, yet in the church he prefers to speak five intelligible words rather than 10,000 words in a tongue, where does he speak them? Now, from a pastoral point of view, this is a point of considerable significance, but I, I plan on dealing with that in our upcoming Sunday School series. But there we have it, folks. The opening 19 verses, intelligibility in corporate worship, building up the church. Okay, so what? What's the application? How are we supposed to live this out? Uh, because New City Baptist is not a quote-unquote charismatic church. And as far as either of your pastors know, there is no member of this church who has the gift of tongues or prophecy. So we might be hard-pressed to apply 19 verses dealing with the intelligibility of a charismatic gift in corporate worship. And yes, I'll grant that. But where we're not at a loss is Paul's bigger picture. Edification during corporate worship. Look at the front of your bulletin for a moment. What does it say near the bottom? Those three important words. Worship edification, evangelism. That's what we're all about. It's right there in our church motto, to know Christ and to make him known. How? Through worship to the glory of God, mutual edification to the glory of God, and evangelism to the glory of God. When the members of this church gather for corporate worship, we do so in part 
to build each other up in the faith. And at New City, corporate worship refers to our Sunday morning service and our Thursday evening prayer meeting. And if we're a member, then we've covenanted to be at both. Why is that important? Because healthy church members believe that every Christian needs other Christians in their life in order to grow in grace, to be edified. For instance, think of your attendance at our weekly prayer meeting. A consistent prayer meeting does at least two things for a church. Number one, it reinforces our sense of responsibility for one another like nothing else can. And two, it provides a useful rubric to use when evaluating how well we're carrying each other's burdens and sorrows. As we weep with those who weep and rejoice, as we weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, Romans 12, 15, we're reminded that we're part of a family, right? We're reminded that each of us possesses a bigger identity. The I has become a we. No longer are we individuals consumed with our own worlds? We're interdependent parts of an organic body called to give thanks together and grieve together. Our joys and sufferings are no longer merely personal and confidential. They're meant to be felt vicariously. Every part of the body is called to experience the joys of God's goodness in the lives of others while simultaneously inhaling the, the secondhand smoke of each other's hard times. As family, we come together to share these things and then take them to God in both praise and petition. But if someone doesn't have this conviction that godliness is in fact a community project, that edification is a community project, that fellow church members need each other to function in a healthy way, that we're interdependent, then what does church participation look like for that Christian? See, this is why Christians don't integrate their Monday to Saturday lives with the lives of other saints. This is why Christians assume they can make a perpetual habit of being absent from the church's gatherings. This is why Christians make major life decisions, such as moving, accepting a promotion, choosing a spouse, etc., without considering the effects of those decisions on the family of relationships in the church, or without consulting the wisdom of the church's pastors and other members. This is why Christians buy homes or rent apartments with scant regard for how factors such as distance and cost will affect their abilities to serve their church. It's because Christians don't realize that they are partly responsible for both the spiritual welfare and the physically livelihood of the other members of their local congregation. When one mourns, one mourns by himself. When one rejoices, one rejoices by herself. And this applies to non-Christians too. This is why Christians can think it's fine to attend a church indefinitely without joining the membership. This is why Christians think of getting baptized apart from joining the membership. This is why Christians take the Lord's Supper without joining the membership. This is why Christians view the Lord's Supper as their own private mystical experience and not as an activity for church members who are incorporated uh, into body life together. The basic disease behind all of these symptoms, the disease which I admit courses through my own veins, is the assumption that we have the authority to conduct our Christian lives on our own. 
We include the church when and where we please. But New City isn't a club. We're not a friendly group of people who, who share a common interest in religious things. And so we, we gather weekly or not to talk about the divine. This church isn't a voluntary organization where our participation is optimal or optional rather, and only when convenient. Uh, we, we have membership commitments, don't we? Regular Lord's Day church attendance, attending prayer meetings, discipleship relationships, hospitality, serving one another, giving cheerfully and sacrificially of our income, attending quarterly member meetings as we ex exercise the use of the keys and vote on new members coming into the church or seeing members out through discipline. Fellow church members need each other to function in a healthy way. And so we die to self. We rearrange our schedules and we show up consistently for corporate worship week after week after week to care for our brothers and sisters and to serve others in love. Worship, edification, evangelism. <clears throat> Friend, if you don't participate regularly, then you won't get the formative experience of church. You won't grow in biblical knowledge through the teaching or in relational depth through praying with others. And if you don't seek the good of others, then you'll learn to judge the church for how it fails to meet your needs and how others fail to reach out to you. Remember, you are part of the body of Christ. You're a part of Christ's body. You might be a hand and an ear or an eye, whatever the appendage. You are essential. Your giftings are essential. And the whole body of New City Baptist Church cannot function properly without you. And you yourself need the body of Christ. So show up and ask around. Look for ways to serve others in love. Other Christians need you more than you can realize. And you need us, too. And now under this same umbrella of intelligibility, Paul moves to the relation of tongues and prophecies to unbelievers. Five verses, very quickly. Verse 20, Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants. But in your thinking, be adults. Because the, the Corinthians thought of themselves as mature, didn't they? Paul, Paul's already had occasion to tell them that they're so infantile that they've not even attained the place where they can consume solid foods. Chapter 3, verse 2. They're still milk-drinking babies. And so Paul's casting around for another way to show the Corinthians that the high estimation in which they hold tongues is misplaced. So he decides to tackle the relation of tongues to unbelievers. Verse 21. In the law, it is written... Isaiah 28, 11 to 12. With other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. All right. What's Paul demonstrating by quoting this Old Testament text? And how does it apply to the Corinthian situation? In the law, in the Old Testament scriptures, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet, is written that at a crucial juncture in the history of the covenant community of God, God spoke to his people through strange tongues. But when he did so, he was speaking a message of judgment. In the context of Isaiah 28, God is going to judge unbelieving Israel by means of the Assyrian army. 
that is by people with foreign lips and strange tongues. Israel had refused to listen to God and repent when he spoke clearly. So now he would visit them through invading hordes by whom he would speak in a language, Assyrian, whose content they would not understand, even though in their strange tongues they will hear a message of judgment. The strange tongues, therefore, did not convey content to the unbelieving Israelites, but they did serve as a sign, a negative sign, a sign of judgment. And this is the Old Testament example to which Paul appeals. Why? It may have been that some believers in Corinth were justifying their undiscriminating overemphasis on tongues by extolling their virtue as a witness to unbelievers, as a sign to them of God's powerful presence in the life of the church, right? So Paul apply, replies in effect, yeah, you're partly right. Tongues are a sign for unbelievers. But if you examine how the scriptures describe the relationship between unbelievers and strange, i.e. foreign, unknown tongues, you discover that they constitute a negative sign. They're a sign of God's commitment to bring judgment. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers, Prophecy positively signifies that God is blessing believers. Verse 23, so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in uninterpreted tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Can you imagine what, what that scene would look like? <laughs> and actually, the, the, the word that's, that's here translated in the NIV, out of your mind, it could actually be very well translated, possessed. In contrast, verse 24, but if an unbeliever or inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, explaining, God is really among you. So in contrast to verse 23, if the church comes together and everyone prophesies and an unbeliever is present, then God may use that prophecy to build up the church by convicting that unbeliever, calling them to account so that they uh, sense that they are under God's wrath and laying bare their innermost secrets. Consequently, they may lay down their arms of rebellion against God and worship him as they, as they exclaim that God is really among the believers of that local church. Now, one other issue emerges from these verses. When Paul says that the unbeliever comes into the assembly while everyone is speaking in tongues, verse 23, or while everyone is prophesying, verse 24, how far can the universality of those descriptions be pressed? And that leads us to our next section, point two, orderliness in corporate worship. And don't worry about the time. I'm going to fly through this. When the church gathers and uses spiritual gifts, we must build up one another by using those gifts in an orderly way. And Paul deals with orderly corporate worship as it relates to tongues, verses 27 to 28, prophecy, uh, 29 to 33a, and then restrictions on women, 33b to 36. When the Corinthian church comes together, they were in danger of having chaotic meetings. And, and obviously that same possibility exists today when various individuals show up at a local church with their own plans on how to participate in the worship gathering. The result can be disorder and thus less building up of believers. 
You'll have noticed uh, it's not a chaotic religious free-for-all at New City Baptist Church. We believe the gathered church has a unique function and a unique responsibility to read the Bible, the Bible publicly, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, preach the Bible, and to see the Bible in the public ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And, and that's by no means a spiritually stifling order of service. It's what Christians all over the world are, are doing every Lord's Day, from Dubai to Dallas, from Beijing to Bob Cajun. But, but if that's true, then what place is there for a charismatic, spontaneous component to corporate worship? Ah, that's the, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? Not so much now, but back in the 70s and 80s, that very issue was splitting churches. But this is a topic I need time to unpack, which I plan to do in our Sunday School series, so I'm not ducking it. What place for charismatic, spontaneous components uh, to corporate worship? Paul exhorts the church to use spiritual gifts in an orderly way. He lists five specific examples of how an individual might contribute to a church meeting. Look at verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. And a hymn refers to singing praise to God. A word of instruction refers to teaching the Bible. A revelation probably refers to prophecy. A tongue refers to speaking in tongues. An interpretation refers to explaining what someone who speaks in tongues has said. And each activity inherently builds up the church, except a tongue. Uh, so Paul takes this overall principle for corporate worship in verse 26. Everything, everything must be done so that the church may be built up. And he applies it now to tongues. And he has three criteria. Rule number one, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time. Rule number two, someone must interpret. Rule number three, if there is no interpreter, the speaker should be quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. That is, they must be silent in the church meeting and speak in tongues privately at home orderliness in corporate worship, intelligibility in corporate worship, edification in corporate worship. Next, Paul turns his attention to the grace gift of prophecy. Verse 29, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. Now, if you look at your handout, prophecy. In common church life, prophecy was recognized to be spirit-prompted utterance but with no guarantee of divine authority in every detail, and therefore not only in need of evaluation, verse 29, but necessarily inferior in authority to the deposit of truth represented by the Apostle Paul, verses 37 to 38. As I've explained previously, New Testament prophets did not speak with absolute divine authority, as in, thus says the Lord. And I've argued that at least three reasons support this conclusion, which I will mention briefly but not defend. Number one, the church must evaluate prophecies and thus could challenge a prophecy and conclude that it is wrong. The command to weigh prophecies in verse 29 translates the Greek word diakrino, which means to evaluate by paying careful attention to, evaluate, judge. 
The literary context plus the meaning of diacrino indicate that Paul is commanding the church to sift the content of prophecies carefully, not to pronounce whether a person prophesying is a true or false prophet. And if the church must weigh prophecies carefully, then New Testament prophecy is fallible and does not carry authority equal to Scripture. Number two, Paul is not concerned that the church might never hear the rest of what someone is prophesying. Verse 30, and if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. Receiving and sharing such a revelation as a prophecy did not mean that one spoke the very words of God. Nobody ever told Jeremiah the prophet to sit down and be quiet so this other prophet guy could have his chance to speak. There is a massive difference between the Old and New Testament prophets. New Testament prophets did not speak with absolute divine authority. Number three, the Apostle Paul's written words in this letter are more authoritative than prophecy. Look at verse 37. If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. The Corinthian prophets did not have authority to establish rules for worshiping God that contradicted the universal practice of other churches and what Paul the Apostle instructs here. Paul the Apostle is in authority over the Corinthians who prophesy, and he establishes his authority by appealing to his status as an apostle, never by appealing to his own gift of prophecy. Thus, New Covenant prophecy differs significantly from prophecy in the Old Testament. While there are different kinds of prophecy in the Old Testament, in general, the words of Old Testament prophecy are God's words, with the result that to disbelieve or disobey true Old Testament prophet's words was to disbelieve or dis disobey God himself. The words of a true Old Testament prophet were beyond challenge. They were beyond question. And in the New Covenant, that mantle has been passed on to the apostles. Verse 31, For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed or encouraged, and encouraged, because it would be confusing, it would be disorderly, for two or more people to prophesy simultaneously. And, and stop, they can. Verse 32, The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of, of prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Orderliness in corporate worship, intelligibility in corporate worship, edification in corporate worship. And finally, restrictions on women, 33b to 36. I, I, I don't, I know it doesn't appear this way in our NIV church Bibles, but a lot of commentators think verse 33b is the start of a new sentence. And I agree, that, that that seems to make more sense of the flow. So look at 33b. As in all the congregations of the Lord's people, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. All right, what do we do with this can of worms? Well, Paul's already laid the groundwork back in chapter 10 or chapter 11, hasn't he? The, the famous head covering passage. Uh, but what Paul's, what's happening here is Paul's addressing a qualification to his previous command in verse 29 
concerning the evaluation of prophecy and orderliness in corporate worship. That, quest, that qualification is this. Women should not evaluate prophecies audibly during church meetings. That's the long and short of it. Women should not evaluate prophecies audibly during church meetings. When Paul says women should remain silent in the churches, they're not allowed to speak, he cannot mean that women must never speak at all during a church meeting. How do we know that? Because in chapter 11, he encourages women to pray and to prophesy during church meetings, but they must do so with their heads covered. No, the literary context specifies that the nature of this silence is with reference to evaluating prophecies audibly during church meetings. And what Paul is commanding here isn't unique to the church in Corinth. It's the practice of all the congregations of the Lord's people, 33b. And Paul supplies a reason for his command concerning women. They must be in submission. And so to evaluate prophecies audibly during the church meetings would be inappropriate for a woman. And he supports his argument with the phrase, as the law says. Uh, the Old Testament, Genesis 2.20. As for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. New City, this is the scripture to which Paul explicitly turns, explicitly turns on two other occasions when he discusses female roles. 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9, and 2 Timothy 2.13. Now, the passage from Genesis 2 doesn't enjoin, doesn't command female silence, of course, but it does suggest that because man was made first and woman was made for man, that some kind of pattern has been laid down regarding the roles the two genders play. From God's very creation order, Paul understands that the wife is to be subject to her husband. So in the context of the Corinthians weighing of prophecies, that submission couldn't be preserved if the wives participated. The first husband who uttered a prophecy would precipitate the problem. Uh, but more broadly, Paul refused to permit any woman to enjoy a church-recognized teaching authority over men. 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and following. And, and Paul, and for Paul, the careful weighing of prophecies falls under that function. Which doesn't mean that women shouldn't learn. No, let the master husbands about various aspects of these prophecies once they return home. But why should the Corinthians buck not only the practice of all the churches, verse 33b, but also the scriptures themselves, verse 36? Are, are they so enamored? With the revelations they're receiving, they dare to pit them against the authentic, authoritative deposit found in Holy Scripture and in the teachings of the apostles. And if they feel they're merely interpreting those teachings under the promptings of the Spirit, aren't they deeply troubled to see that all the churches have translated the same texts and the same gospel 
into quite different church practices? Verse 36, or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? Spartan up. Stop thinking like children. That's what he's saying. Point three, warnings and a summary. First, the warnings. Verse 37, if anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. The Corinthians or any local church today, no matter how bursting at the seams they are with Holy Spirit power, supposedly, must not dismiss what Paul, the apostle, instructs in chapter 14 concerning their regulation. What Paul's writing here is a command of the Lord. Verse 38, but if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. If anyone refuses to recognize what Paul writes has divine authority, then God will not recognize that person. If anyone ignores what Paul writes, God will ignore that person. In other words, Paul warns that even though such a person may insist, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Jesus will reply on Judgment Day, I never knew you. Finally, and with this we'll close, Paul's two summary verses. And here we see that so far as the competing claims of prophecy and the gift of tongues are concerned, prophecy is heartily encouraged and tongues are not to be forbidden. Therefore, verse 39, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Orderliness in corporate worship, intelligibility in corporate worship, edification in corporate worship. Amen.